Well, tonight we are delving into Romans 8, guided by St. John Chrysostom primarily, and secondarily, Reed Davis. So, <laughs> we... <laughs> batting at 300, Reed Davis. <laughs> in the... <laughs> so, uh, let's start with prayer, and then we'll delve in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments. The trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ your God, and to you do we ascribe glory together to your fathers that is, who is from everlasting, and your all-holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever into ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me bring the passage up here. There we go. Um, so what I'm actually hoping for us to get through tonight is the first 17 verses. We talked about that a little last week. And, um, you know, I thought the whole chapter would really be just too much. This is sort of the thickest chapter in the book of Romans. <clears throat> Um, so I've tried to prepare the first 17 verses. It's still too much, but we'll try to get through. Uh, <laughs> so would someone be so kind as to read for us verses one through eight? I can do that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the, righteousness, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Thank you. Um, this is a fascinating passage, and it, it occurs to me, um, you know, having been very familiar with this in my evangelical years, that as an evangelical, what stood out in neon lights in that whole passage is the very beginning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Pretty much you can neglect the rest of it. Wow, really? That, <laughs> um, you know, somehow the rest of it is somehow about, it's not the sin, it's Christ. I mean, it's not the law, it's Christ, you know. You know, before Christ came, you couldn't be saved by the law, and now you are in Christ. That's sort of the whole story. There's a lot more going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this was one of the things that troubled me as an evangelical. It's like we have little snippets here and there that we like because we think we understand them, and we sort of have to ignore everything in between because we don't know what to do with it. And um, what really strikes me is the one part of this passage that John Chrysostom seems to have almost nothing to say about is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says almost nothing about that. He starts picking up with, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he may be taking it that that initial uh, clause is sort of the natural culmination of what came before it, since, of course, he's not looking at a chapter division there. Um, but he really says practically nothing about that. And he begins in a way that will address what he sees a lot of going on in this passage with who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And his comment is, since many fall into sin after baptism, St. Paul limits the promise of no condemnation. This is my summary of it. Not merely to those who are in Christ, but to those who walk not after the flesh and emphasizing, now we have the power to do that. And so a great deal of what he sees going on in this passage is a call to live in a fashion worthy of our baptism. And indeed going so far as to say our baptism will be of no value to us. It will not save us if we don't live in a fashion that's worthy of it. Um, so in this passage, there are some major themes. I started trying to make a note of them, and here were three that I came up with. First of all, that nowhere in the passage does St. Paul condemn the flesh as evil. What he condemns is a fleshy life, one in which the body leads namely into the passions of the world, rather than following the commands of the mind or the soul of the spirit, the will, something else. Um, and, and this is a point that Chrysostom just hammers on again and again, that none of this can be read as St. Paul condemning the flesh. Yeah. I suspect, because he's mentioned this elsewhere, that this is partly because there were heretical groups like the Manichaeans around who were claiming that the flesh itself was evil. And so it was a hot topic, evidently, in the circles he moved in, but he hammers it again and again. Um, also, that the law of Moses was not bad, but it was weak and inadequate. It instructed the mind, but couldn't control the body. It was spiritual, but it didn't impart the grace of the spirit. And then the third point was that Christ brought something far greater than the law, it did bring the body into subjection by joining, it, joining us into the death of Christ in the body. It also brought us baptism in the Holy Spirit, which gives us a much easier race to run than those under the law had. And so he's made the race a great deal more demanding for us, but with vastly greater rewards. So anyway, that's sort of, those are three of the big themes that I see running through here. Does anyone else have thoughts or comments on this passage before I look at some more of the details of Chrysostom's commentary?
the connections with the former chapter, I've never really thought of them that strongly about his whole metaphor of the, the spouse and death. And now you're free. Mm -hmm. You're still worth talking about flesh, death, freedom, life. But the metaphor has changed a bit, but it's still kind of the same. Like he's, still trying to work with the same set of metaphors, but he's moving them <laughs> along in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's so, well, for one thing, of course, in chapter seven, as Chrysostom reads it, this is all talking about people under the law. Right. And at the end of chapter seven, having brought things to a climax of, you know, a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. He gives the solution. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then there's sort of one sentence of interlude. And then it's like he picks up with the beginning of eight this way. There is no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like, okay, we've got that problem settled. Now let's talk about where we are now. Other thoughts? I'm going to go back and reread Romans 7. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at verse 2, uh, th this is a, a good passage for something I, I think I've often seen Chrysostom do. He really analyzes the language and just talks about how do you read this? Oh, hello, David. Hi. Uh, you know, can we read this literally? Dare we read it literally? Why not if we don't? Um, you know, it says this and not that. And so it really does a lot of just parsing the words. And so, for instance, in verse two, uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And he says, now the law of the spirit just means the spirit and the law of sin just means sin. And neither one of those is the law of Moses. Um, which was spiritual, but did not give the spirit. Um, and we now have the spirit and not merely, but in large measure, giving us um, abundant help and making the contest easy. Point that he emphasized, he's, I mean, we've heard most of this before, but he's going to hit it a lot harder here. Um, Chrysostom also comments on the, men, mentioned the Trinitarian references here that chapter seven ends, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then, so the father and the son here, eight starts with the son again, but according to the spirit. And then in verse three, what the, uh, the law was powerless to do or could not do, and that was weak through the flesh, God, the father did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of Sin and then on at the very uh, at the end of verse four, those who do not work, walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so he sees these, you know, that Paul does not speak of the work of one apart from the other here. Um, verse three, pretty straightforward reading, I think, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. So the point here is that the law wasn't bad. Chrysostom, Chrysostom's word is it harmonizes with Christ. It's just that it was weak. 
And indeed, it wasn't really even the law that was weak. It was the flesh, which he emphasizes doesn't mean our bodies, but a carnal mind, a, a mind given to the interests of the flesh. And thus, Paul manages neither to condemn the law nor the body, because in fact, the son did what the law was aiming at. Uh, so the law itself wasn't bad. And he says the law was able to instruct the soul. It could tell us what was supposed to be done, but it couldn't bridle the body actually to make it do it. But the son made the bridling of the body easy. And I've got a lengthy quote later because, you know, I, I, I tend to look at this and think, easy? <laughs> this is not how I think of it. You know, it, it seems like life is, is a struggle as a Christian. Is this really so different from what the, the, the Jews under the law faced? And uh, there's a, a longish quote I've got later where Chrysostom draws the contrast of life under the law and life for us. that I think makes clearer what it is he's looking at. Verse three also. Um, Can I make a comment read real quick? Oh yeah, sure. You know, one of the things I think having been Orthodox for over a decade now and read a lot of the fathers, reading this text is so easy after that because it provides, I think we we're saying before we started recording, a context of spiritual warfare, of the the primacy of the spirit to the flesh, not of a degradation of the flesh per se, but the right ordering of the flesh towards the end of what it's supposed to be. And that is provided in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. And that's what this whole chapter is about. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it, that is a very different kind of basic summation of the gospel than what a lot of what you hear as the gospel is something that is like ideas that you need to get into your head mm -hmm. versus the spiritual warfare that Christ had to come in order to, he came bearing the spirit so that we could become spirit bearers. That's why he took on flesh. Mm -hmm. And you really see that in Chrysostom's reading of this passage. Exactly. And it's just consistent throughout the whole tradition. That's so even if you haven't read Chrysostom on this, you can probably having read, I don't know, Theophon the Recluse, you can come to this and probably say, well, this is what I think this, this passage means. Right. But if you're stuck in that dialectic of a lot of the Lutheran inspired Protestant readings of justification of faith, you don't know what to do with this stuff. Right. Sorry, that's the last I'm going to talk about Protestants tonight. No, that's okay. I, I, I spent decades there thoroughly convinced. So it still strikes me as an extraordinary grace of God that I ended up here. Um, there's this interesting little bit here in verse three about um, God did this by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. It's, Chrysostom, I think, punctuates it differently. Um, and so, uh, first of all, he mentions this word likeness simply means Christ had no sin, but his flesh was the same as ours. 
and that's why the word likeness is there to emphasize without sin, but nothing more than that. And he says, now, how was it that in our flesh he condemned sin? And the answer is, well, sin had always won a very easy victory over the flesh in every man who had ever lived. And suddenly in Christ, it failed. Suddenly in Christ, the flesh came out ahead because Christ did not sin in the body. And despite this, despite Christ being sinless in the flesh, sin handed him over to death. And that was an act of injustice. And this was how sin was condemned because to hand a man over to death who hadn't done anything wrong was uh, plainly an act of injustice. And this is how sin was condemned by handing over to death as though a sinner, someone who was in fact sinless. And uh, Chrysostom, maybe not surprisingly here, points out, since Christ took on our flesh and uh, you know, made it his own and made it the victor over sin, this makes it very clear that our flesh is not evil. Other thoughts before we press on? I'm just waiting for you to get to verse 7. <laughs> okay. We're never going to get there, David. We're going to stall out at five. <laughs> you know, we'll try. I, I, could, I could see part of why Chrysostom's pushing on this, the flesh isn't bad, might mm-hmm. have even been born of his own personal experience. And why I say that is early in his life, he actually hurt himself fasting. Um, and he had like stomach issues for the rest of his life. Uh, and so when he's encouraging fasting and uh, the ascetical life for, for those who are not uh, choosing the kind of monastic or, you know, completely the world, excuse me, he's very tempered. He said, you know, you're supposed to fast, but he, I think he probably wrestled with some of this and had to come to a kind of, um, middle of the road and by middle of the road i mean again i think most of the times we think middle of the road means laxity i think he just meant you got to have a good relationship with your body you don't need to hurt yourself in fasting um because he had personal experience i withdraw to... what i said but i'm sorry <laughs> i withdraw what i said i'm waiting for verse six okay <laughs> well we'll get there sooner maybe <laughs> Well, let me press on then. In verse 4, he talks about the righteousness of the law and um, New King James's righteous requirement of the law. He reads it simply as righteousness of the law. He reads this as being its aim, that the aim of the law was that we should be without sin, and this is the victory that Christ won. He says, so now we sin only by our lack of vigilance and diligence. And Christ won, not that we might relax, but that our combat might not be in vain. Thus, the righteousness is fulfilled only in those, quote, those who do not walk according to the flesh, and moreover, according to the spirit. His phrasing is, he gave us the crown, but we must hold it fast. And if I may actually quote part of this here, though I've updated the language a little. For in this passage, he shows that the font will not suffice to save us unless after coming from it, we display a life worthy of the gift. And so he again advocates the law in saying what he does. 
For when we have once become obedient to Christ, we must use all ways and plans so that its righteousness, which Christ fulfilled, may abide in us and not come to naught. So. Okay, I'm not going to wait for verse six. I'm just going to admit that I'm lost. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, this just looks like such, such, this looks like condemnation of the flesh to me. Okay, tell me where you're seeing this. Well, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so the spirit is better than the flesh. That's not an outright condemnation of the flesh. I agree, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I'll take, okay, the flesh is inadequate. For the law of the spirit of life in G Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, okay? For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, inadequacy is what i'm reading there god did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit again okay i i can see all that as the flesh being inadequate am i getting that right is that what it is what do you mean by inadequate for salvation I think he's saying that the law is inadequate, but that the flesh is, is weak and makes a very poor leader. The, the flesh is not to rule us, it's to be put into submission. Yeah, but it's in five, you know, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now that makes it sound like if you set your mind on things of the flesh, that's not a good thing. And one naturally, I would think, infer from that the flesh is not good. Well, so what are things of the flesh? Well, I guess that's what I'm wondering. What Chrysostom I, says. I, I mean, I, I assumed I assumed things of the flesh. Let me throw out what I assume, and then you can correct me. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, for instance, we fast, right? Mm -hmm. So you eat to feed your body. So I guess eating would be a thing of the flesh. No. Nope. Okay, you got to admit there's a, you got to admit there's a little bit of logic in there, don't you? I mean, I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think what it is is it's the inordinate eating. It is or like the struggle with the eating. What what is the point of eating? Why are we eating? Um, the fathers would say, you know, there's a, a form of eating where it's sust sustenance. And then there's excess. I think yeah. most of us are used to a lot of excess as North Amer like North Americans. We're used to seeing a lot of food. Yeah. I agree. So okay. it's not that flesh is bad. It, it's what we're doing with it. But where does he say inordin inordinate? Well, Chrysostom would see it like in this language of living according to the flesh. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, and then the, he says exactly what Father Daniel's saying. It's, um, you know, in phrases like living according to the flesh, uh, you mind on the things of the flesh, that 
is not simply, yes, we have bodies and there are certain things we need to do for them and use them in certain ways, but we start to live according to the body as though that was really what we are exclusively or primarily. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, Chrysostom's comment is... Yes, David. <laughs> Sorry, what? What's the word that I can phrase that I can say that will unlock it? Your material yeah. helps. He says the flesh isn't evil, but if we give ourselves over to it, letting it exceed its proper place and rule over the soul, then it destroys and corrupts everything. And for my mind, trying to come up with sort of a way of clothing that in a way that might make more sense, I wondered if it was like fire. Fire oh, is a fire. wonderful thing. If you keep it in the right place, carefully under control, it will cook for you. It will keep you warm. It will give you light. And if you don't keep it carefully where it belongs, it will destroy everything and kill you. David, I'm going to go Pajot route on you for a second, okay? What's that? I'm going to go Pajot on you, David. Oh. <laughs> it's hierarchical. Right? The spirit is more, I don't want to say primary or has higher ranking and the flesh is to be submitted to the spirit. The problem is, is that we usually just follow the flesh without the logic of the spirit. Okay. So that doesn't mean sex, food, all the things that the body, but it's the wrong ends or use of those things not according to the logic of Christ. Okay. That is to be fleshly minded, to be spiritually minded is to do it in such a way to reflect what we understand, who God is, what the world is for, what our bodies are for. So to be carnally minded is to act as if your body is not related to the kingdom. Right. So it, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say to be incarnate is death. It says to be carnally minded is death. It's not the fact that your flesh is death is being carnally minded is death is being focused on. Right. And so, Correct. because the carnal mind is enmity against God, not the flesh, but the carnal mind is enmity against God. Right. They, I think I'm, and, and I'm doing great. And then I get to verse eight. Mm hmm. And then you are. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh -oh. I think that has to be qualified by six and seven. Okay. Yeah, Chrysostom, Chrysostom on verse eight evidently knew people who tried to take that literally, that the body is the problem. Ah, and, and so, you know, he's, he says, so does this mean that we've got to like cut our bodies <laughs> in pieces in order to please God? And he said... That sort of literalism would produce wild inconsistencies. So he, he says here, flesh doesn't mean just the body, but a life that is fleshly and worldly and full of self-indulgence and extravagance. Where, this, is a, this is amazing. Chrysostom and I have got acquaintances in common. <laughs> uh, because in, in, my, in, 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 my, in my Protestant background... In my Protestant, in my Protestant background, uh, 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 gee, I've had people pull out verse eight and say, "Let's see, flesh is bad. The material mm -hmm. world's bad." 
your body is bad. Yep. Has a sin nature. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sin nature. Read it right there in the Bible. Yeah. It says so. <laughs> so, so is Chrysostom saying, I want to get this right. Is Chrysostom saying we actually have to read these verses in context? Absolutely. Oh. And not just. Oh, and not no. Just, no, no. <laughs> and not just in the context of the passage itself, but within the context of the church. Ah. This was when I first taught this as an evangelical, I eventually started to understand and be astonished that he gets so much out of this because he has been instructed within the church that's taught him what it ought to say. Right. And then, you know, once you do that, it all starts to read very, very richly. Yeah. Okay, I, ho I hope I haven't taken you off track. This has all been very helpful to me. But... No, no, not at all. It's, it's just... Many people have the same, uh, very much the same questions. Yeah, in verse 6, Chrysostom speaks of carnally minded, meaning a grosser motion of the mind. Um, and if I could, if I may read at some length on verse 7, um, there was a passage there that I thought was just so lovely. It really deserved to be read, and I even took the time to try to paraphrase it. Not, paraphr not paraphrasing Chrysostom, God forbid, but paraphrasing this very difficult translation of him <laughs> into something that flows better. Um, so he says, for, for what he here names carnal-mindedness is the reasoning that is earthly, gross, and... Uh, eager-hearted after the things of this life and its wicked doings. It is of this that he says, uh, neither can it be subject to God. Um, and then uh, dropping down a bit, carnal-mindedness means vice. Spiritual-mindedness means virtue, or more fully, the grace we have received and its visible working in our choosing and doing right. Nowhere in this passage does St. Paul address the substance or nature of our bodies. What the law gave no power to do, living uprightly without falling, now you will be able to do if you lay hold of the aid of the Spirit. Avoiding walking in the flesh is inadequate and will not secure our salvation. Rather, we must pursue the Spirit and do good. We will succeed if we give our souls up to the Spirit and teach our flesh its proper position, thereby making our flesh spiritual just as our listlessness will, make, listlessness will make our souls carnal. Baptism has given us freedom of choice, so henceforth it is up to us to be spiritual or carnal. For he on his part did everything. For sin no longer wars against the law of our minds or leads us away captive as it did before. That condition is over and demolished, and the passions cower in fear at the grace of the Spirit. But if you quench the light and eject the horseman who guides the carriage and chase the helmsman away, then consider yourself the cause of the tossing of the ship. Since virtue is now easier than previously, for which reasons we have stricter obligations in right, religious living, compare the condition of men under the law and their condition now that grace has shown forth. I thought that phrase was interesting since we sing the, the chauffari and grace shining forth. What seemed impossible in those times, speaking of the Old Testament times, virginity, contempt of death, and, uh, and of other great sufferings, 
are now strongly evident throughout the world, not just among the Greeks, but among Scythians, Thracians, Indians, Persians, and other barbarians. There are companies of virgins, clans of martyrs, congregations of monks more numerous than the married, and strictness of fasting and utmost renunciation of property. These are practices which, with very few exceptions, those under the law never even dreamt of. Since this announces the new reality as clearly as a trumpet, do not let yourself grow soft and treacherous to so great a grace. For not even after this, not even after this faith is it possible for a listless man to be saved. God made the wrestling easy so that you may strive and conquer, not so that you should sleep or misuse the greatness of the grace as a reason for list, listlessness, returning to wallow in the mire. So I thought, among other things, that was lovely for giving more of a picture of what he has in mind talking about the grace that has come to us in contrast to the limitations of those living under the law. Other oh, thoughts or comments? Yeah. And I mean, I did think this was interesting because again, from an evangelical background, you know, Christ has won our salvation. We can relax. <laughs> right. We do good works because, you know, we want to pursue sanctification, but justification is taken care of, right? It's, you know, something we do as an offering to God out of love for him, which is not a bad thing, of course, but in Chrysostom's view, it's like, no, these are not a free will offering. A good life is obligatory. We will not be saved without it. And what Christ did was not to free us from the battle. It was to put us in a position in which we can fight the battle successfully through baptism, through the Spirit. Ah, well said, Reed. Well, I'm quoting a good source, or at least paraphrasing. Yeah. Which is, I, I yeah, thought, one of the yeah. I think that's, I think, I think that's a wonderful contrast because that's the sense they've always had of the difference between orthodoxy and, 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 and uh, I'm going to say a lot of Protestantism. I, I guess, I guess, evangelicalism. Uh, yeah, it's the difference between believing. Uh, there's a big part of it is 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 whether you think the battle is now over or you think the battle has just begun, mm -hmm. right? And this whole thing about you know you're standing on the street corner, you say and you say this whatever that magic prayer is, and it's like that's the end of the battle. And, and I come into orthodoxy and I get the distinct impression, no, you just started. <laughs> you got, you, 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 you've got a, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you just started. Yeah. Which for me was kind of a relief. It's kind of like, oh, I've got something to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. But if I, I mean, may just one, just just one more thought of it, 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 and fasting is helpful here. I think the the mm -hmm. practice the practice of of fasting, because mm -hmm. fasting, if nothing else, reminds me that I 
I, I, I'm working on this. You know? Yeah. The bo- the bother of fasting, if if you if you will, you know the having to go to the trouble of uh, 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 you know of uh, having to figure out what to eat, you know. Okay, I'll shut up now. No, no, that's good. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Well. It definitely helps explain the entire ethos of orthodoxy and why it's different. And it's liturgical life, the maximalist understanding of the liturgical life. Mm-hmm. Like we were just talking about you witnessing a Protestant baptism in a river and it was probably five minutes long and two and a half minutes was getting in the water and getting out of the water. <laughs> yes. Right. And in orthodoxy, it takes if you're doing going fast 45 minutes to do a baptism so just that that focus and the realization of the sacraments and the sacramental i'll say system but i would rather say like life of the church the mysteries are all there to aid in the struggle and i think it's more accurate of the struggle of our life (laughs) As opposed to like, I'm saved, but I sure as heck don't feel like it. But I guess I'm supposed to some have some kind of sanctification thing going on. And Orthodox is like, salvation is struggle, period. It's the cross, period. It is spirit. It is grace-filled, but it's still, it's struggle. So I, I just think it's more accurate, adequate, you know, to our basic lived experience. We know what it is to live according to the flesh, and we get glimpses of what it's like to live according to the spirit, <laughs> or to live carnally minded and live spiritually minded. Yeah. Pick up your cross. Yeah. So I have heard yeah. a criticism of uh, the Orthodox that uh, the orthodox take it all too seriously really fascinating so um maybe we can uh, push on a little more here uh maybe again just about reading verse nine starts out but you are not in the flesh and Christism says what does this mean, that they didn't have bodies? Kind of like, this is silly, guys. <laughs> and he gives a, an instruction there. It says, for we are not to look at the bare words, but always to the sentiment of the speaker, and so come to a perfectly distinct knowledge of what is said. Um, he says that the body and the soul are indifferent, and the spirit is always good. Indifferent meaning, we might say neutral, I suppose. Um, And so if we yield our soul and body to the better, we'll become better. And if we yield them to the worse, we'll partake of its ruin. But this isn't because of the nature of the soul or the flesh, but according to the judgment that has the power of choosing. And um, there's a lovely little passage here that I'd like to quote again. I I hope you all don't mind. I'm spending so much time just quoting Chrysostom. Um, And it says, but what does he mean by but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Christ has not merely extinguished the tyranny of sin, 
but has even made the flesh to weigh us down less and to be more spiritual, not by changing its nature, but rather by giving it wings. I think that's a beautiful mm. sentence. For as when fire comes in contact with iron, the iron also becomes fire, though retaining its own nature. Thus, with them that believe and have the spirit, the flesh henceforth goes over into that manner of working and becomes wholly spiritual, crucified in all parts and flying with the same wings as the soul. Um, such as was the body of him, that is the apostle Paul, who here speaks. And he goes on and talks about how Paul was greatly self-indulgent. And he practiced his self-indulgence in hunger and stripes and prison and such things. So. Um, we go on. I guess we've gotten into a part we hadn't read. Um, Yeah, I mean, as we go on, it says a great deal of the same thing down on through verse 17. Um, there was something very interesting here, I thought, uh, there in verse 15. Um, well, first of all, in 15, for we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. And what Chrysostom takes that to mean is the old covenant, the covenant of the law. And he has a long and, again, really gripping passage contrasting those under that law and we who live under grace. And, you know, like they were told not to murder, but we're told not even to be angry. And, uh, you know, how they received, you know, they were told to do certain actions in the flesh and they were given immediate rewards or punishments for obeying or disobeying, whereas we are uh, concerned about all of our actions and our imagination and our conscience. And we're con you know, willing to forgo all of the goods and pleasures of this life for the sake of a reward that's yet to come. That theirs was very much the place of slaves who have to be given immediate rewards or immediate punishments if they're going to obey. But you know, we're following the, the obedience of sons who are expecting an inheritance uh, to come far down the road and you know has many many uh you know he says what they blasphemed when they had benefits done them we are thankful at being put in jeopardy and so uh, he draws contrast after contrast about the spiritual life of the christian composed to the life of those under the law and then he finally gets to by whom we cry out the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father and he comments that evidently when the, the believers were newly baptized, the, the first prayer they prayed was the Lord's Prayer. The first word they spoke was Father. And so I think he sees this as an, as an allusion to that, that he's not just mentioning Father because God is close to us, because this was the first word of the newly illumined as they began to pray to God. Mm. They didn't even teach them the Our Father until after they were baptized. 
to go back to a world where people didn't know they are father. That's something. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, I think he talks about a lot of this under uh, verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, that, you know, and sort of like the spirit teaches us this in the church where having been baptized, we begin by addressing God as father, which he says, even though there are a couple passages in the Old Testament that speak that way, it plainly is not how the Jews of the Old Testament addressed God. And then he's in verse 17, he looks at this incredible glory of not being merely children, which was already too much to bear, but heirs, and not merely heirs, but heirs of God, and not merely heirs of God, but join heirs with Christ. And, um, and he concludes, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And his comment is, if God did so much for us when we were still sinners and didn't care about him, how much more when we are actually laboring and suffering for his sake? Yes. So I kind of skipped over a whole bunch, and I'm kind of I'm going to pretend that we covered it. But um, if anyone <laughs> wants to bring anything up or make comments or questions or whatever, please feel free. I've done an awful lot of talking. You're doing great. I appreciate the encouragement. Okay. Well, um, then I think our plan was to do half of the chapter tonight, which we now have declared ourselves to have done. Um, and then we will skip next week because it's clean week and our priests will be very highly occupied. <laughs> but then two weeks hence, we'll try to do the second half of chapter eight. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, then I will unshare right, here. Okay, well, thank you all. Thank you. I love how Chrysostom kind of simplifies Paul very much. Mm -hmm. It'd be worth putting together sometime an essay or something, read or even co like you and me putting together something or even a draft of just kind of addressing the basic themes of what Chrysostom draws out of Romans versus what the kind of typical debates are always, because I know I would have very much, what is it? 12 or 13 years ago would have found that helpful because mm. you don't know how to even begin to, think around it or outside of it. Does that make sense? Yes. Because your mind is so preset. I've been there. And something like going through Romans chapter by chapter and just talking about what Chrysostom's doing and I don't know. Certain nerdy people somewhere would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well it'd be helpful to have it would be helpful to have something to refer back to. Because this is one of those things where, 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 you know, with a little bit of effort, I was able to finally kind of get a handle on what's going on. And then right. the next time I read Romans, I got to read into the same problem because I've been reading Romans the same way for over half a century. 
Right. Yeah. You know, and it would be helpful to have something that tipped me off to the tools that I could use to get me out of that kind of thinking. So not really, it, it, you know, that, that, that are really, you know, a uh, 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 15-page footnote of compare and contrast, uh, <laughs> but 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 just but just you know something something really simple that that helped broad thematic and kind of vocabulary breakdown of vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about it makes me wag my tail. <laughs> <laughs> We're having such an intense conversation about flesh and spirit, and all of a sudden this tail appears. <laughs> like, I don't know what kind of flesh you got, David, but that's interesting. I don't know. That, that might be We've interesting. We've all got our demons. So. Yes. <laughs> to, right. to try to do that. Though, I know, I think for me, certainly the first time I was reading through all of this, of course, I kept expecting to see certain things show up, right, as an evangelical and certain readings. And I think it was very important to me to see chapter after chapter, verse after verse, that's not what he says. Oh, I know what this verse says. Oh, no, he reads it a different way. Well, how about I know the next one? No, not that one either. And it's like, you know, after you've done that a couple hundred times, you start to think, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with how I've been reading this, you know, but still it would be a cool thing to try to do. Maybe we could talk more about it sometime, father. Yeah. yeah. Of course I could always just read Chrysostom himself. Couldn't I? Yeah. I, I also think about, um, the other commentary is Archbishop Demetrius' commentary. Hmm. So I think about if we did what book to do after this. Well, I'm gonna. Well, we can see, keep talking. I was thinking about cutting off the recording. <laughs> <laughs> I um, want to do that. Yeah, let's do that. So nobody can know what we're planning. 